Welcome to the latest episode of Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. And, uh, you know, we want to just ask for your prayers for Sakib. Uh, you know, he's taking care of family members who are going through a tough time. Um, won't divulge any other details, but just keep him in your prayers. He needs them. Uh, he needs he needs your support and good energy. So all our best to Sakib, uh, who, by the way, he's still recording this podcast, but just, you know, the daily maintenance a little bit harder. I'm still, of course, providing my written coverage. Uh, did so at Madrid. We're going to do so at Rome. And, of course, at the upcoming uh, Roland Garros tournament. And uh, for our guest today, hey, we turn to our in-house resident expert, Andrew Burton. You can find him on Twitter at BurtonAd. Uh, Andrew, plenty to talk about. And uh, as we welcome you back to the show, the first point of entry, the, the leadoff, has to be Carlos Alcaraz, who... You know, made a splash in Miami, but this was orders of magnitude bigger. Your general reaction to the Alcaraz show in Madrid? That was quite a show, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, we occasionally talk about tournaments and players going through a murderer's row, but uh, he is the first player to go through Nadal and Djokovic back-to-back in in a clay court tournament. And then for good measure, he took on the world number four, Sasha Zverev, in the final. And before that match, I was thinking, okay, after beating Nadal and Djokovic and obviously riding a rocket, he's probably... Uh, the conventional wisdom favorite, but Zverev is a two-time winner. Uh, So, you know, he's not exactly chopped liver. Alcaraz made him look like chopped liver. Yeah, and, and, you know, Andrew, I mean, let's just kind of tease this out a little bit. I mean, you know, our our thought processes, everyone in the tennis world, our thought processes changed with each day that Alcaraz rewrote the rules, redefined our sense of what was possible. Okay, so he beat Nadal, but he tweaked his ankle during that match. So you think when he goes into the Djokovic match, well, he's not 100% uh, physically ready. Djokovic is probably going to edge him out when it counts. Nope, he, he really recovered quickly, didn't really seem significantly physically worn down and he handles the moment against Djokovic. So then you go into the Madrid final, where, as you said, Zverev had been a monster in Madrid the past few years. It suits his game. So you think, you know, he's been there before. I tweeted specifically that, you know, he's won five masters titles, Olympic gold medalist, made a major final, made several major semifinals, won two ATP finals championships. And yet he's the clear underdog against a guy who hasn't done any of those things. And sure enough, he got his butt kicked. And and Alcaraz not only showed that he deserved to be the favorite, but like he played like a favorite. He played like a big dog. There was just, there's nothing underdogish to create a word about Alcaraz. Like he just looked like the better, more complete player than Zverev, just as he looked like the better, more complete player than all the guys he faced. And (laughs) he just turned 19. What's going on here? Yeah, and, and uh, I, I kind of have a thought that uh, I was trying to think a little bit about this uh, this afternoon as I was getting ready for this conversation. 
And again, we mustn't get ahead of ourselves because uh, I was thinking, what's the comparison point? And I was thinking maybe when Djokovic beat Federer for the first time in Cincinnati. So he uh, beat Federer in three sets in Cincinnati. It was his first win in their fifth meeting. Federer pretty near his peak. Uh, Djokovic won a, a final set tiebreaker. And then a few weeks later, they met in the final of the US Open. And Djokovic had set points in the first two sets, but lost in straight sets. So wasn't yet quite the full meal deal. Now, okay, that's 16 years ago. And we have to reach that far back to find someone like Djokovic, like Nadal, who has the rocket underneath him the way that, that Alcaraz does. The other thing, I just going back over my, my Twitter uh, match call, the thing with, with Zverev, uh, I, I couldn't help but think of a line in uh, Tom Wolfe's wonderful book, The Right Stuff, about the Mercury astronauts and the test pilots who preceded them. And one of the things that you, you, you get early on is this despairing call over radio as a test pilot's plane is plunging out of control. I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C. And then he crashes and is burned beyond recognition. And that's in the second set, that's what I, I thought Zverev was going through. You know, he was he was trying everything, he was trying moon balls, and he crashed and and, and burned beyond recognition. And, and going into the match, you had Jim Courier and um Jason Goodall on the, the match call for the, the TV commentary for Tennis Channel. And they were doing the, the, the kind of semi-worshipful discussion about Alcaraz that you, you sometimes get about a, a real top player, a big dog. And then on the, in the second set, when Alcaraz got his second break, um, Courier basically saw him hit a drop shot, then hit a soft lob, and Courier just goes, got him again, unreal. The kid's unreal. And it was, you know, Jim Courier's got four grand slams and a, a stellar career to his name. You know, he, he knows quality when he sees it. Yeah, I mean, so I, there's there's really a was a quality over the past four days in Madrid where we were all reduced to being school children, uh, giggling at just how easy Alcaraz was making this sport look, uh, and doing it, you know, again against Nadal, Djokovic, and you know, Zverev's no chump. I mean, Zverev isn't isn't uh, Djokovic or or Rafa, but he isn't a chump. Uh, he's achieved quite a lot uh, in tennis. You know, we've so we've all had these moments. You alluded to Djokovic, you know, beating Federer in in uh, in Montreal in uh, 2007, uh, leading up to the U.S. Open. Like that was his big announcement, as you know, his, his, uh, his stating his presence on tour. I think for many, the the big uh, reveal of Nadal. Some could say that it was beating Federer in Miami, or pu- you know, pushing Federer in Miami. Uh, others, I, I would include myself among this group, was when he beat Federer in the Roland Garros semifinals uh, in 2005 before beating Mariano Puerta uh, to lift his his first of very many uh, Coupe de Mousquetaires. 
in, in Paris. And of course, for Federer, it's Pete Sampras in 2001 at Wimbledon. So I think I think our listeners here on the show, Andrew, they'd all like to get various perspectives on you know how we react. Just it's not really as analysts, but just like as human beings, like we all get these thoughts in our head. We all have these immediate reactions, these instant callbacks to moments in our lives watching this sport over the course of decades when we felt, oh man, like this 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 player is going to be special. This career is going to be sensational. So we've all had those moments with Federer, with Nadal, with Djokovic. As you said, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but <laughs> like we can't ignore this conversation. Like we, obviously, Carlos Alcaraz has significantly changed the conversation surrounding his career, surrounding his co- trajectory, surrounding his own sense of what's possible. Now, like, I'm not going to say he's going to win 20 or 15 majors. I think that's premature for sure. But we can all say, wow, this is no ordinary player. So, Andrew, just what's your sense of, you know, how you reacted to these matches, what you think is is generally possible for him? Maybe the best starting point, Andrew, is simply – you know, how you think Carlos Alcaraz has changed your internal monologue, your internal thought process about, you know, what kind of tennis player he can be. Yeah, so the first way, the first thing that I think he's he's definitively changed is the conversation around youth in the men's game. Because we went through a period in the 2010s uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to bore for England on the topic. I can, as you probably know. But we went through a period in the, in the 2010s where people were saying, we're not going to see another teenager like Rafa, like Novak, maybe even like Andy Murray, that players are going to have to be 21, 22 before they become threats to win majors or they win big tournaments. And Alcaraz won his first Masters 1000 this year in Miami as an 18-year-old. He's just turned 19. Um, after the match with Zverev, you had Andy Roddick and Jim Courier talking about what Zverev's potential was. And Roddick, I think, was saying, we don't know. He's already this good. He's already got one of the best drop shots, backhand and forehand on the tour. Uh, He serves big. He's going to get faster. You get faster between 19 and 22. You get to serve better between 19 and 22. He's got a top quality coach, uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero, who's been there and who Alcaraz obviously respects, looks up to, and can, can, can help him navigate what the top reaches of the tour look like as a, a young player, as Ferrero was back in 2002-2003. So the, the, the most immediate thing is youth is back. You've got players like Sinner, you've got Musetti, um, Felix Ogialiasim now looks like the, the greybeard among that group and, he, and he's barely into his 20s 
So, so youth is definitely back. That's my first reaction. Let's look at the specific journey Alcaraz made. I know we have other topics to get to, but you know, Alcaraz really has created a sensation in the tennis world. So we do want to kind of get more observations on this particular story. Uh, what struck you about, you know, in microcosm, how he handled the Nadal challenge and then the, the Djokovic challenge? Obviously, he made Zverev, you know, look uh, very inferior on Sunday, but specifically, what what uh, takeaways do you have from his Nadal and his Djokovic matches, you know, becoming the first man ever to beat both of them on consecutive days at a clay court tournament? What, what was uh, particularly noticeable and impressive about how he went about those two tasks? So the Nadal match, I wondered if it was going to be like, the time that Nadal played Nishikori in the 2014 Madrid final, where Nishikori was on the verge of announcing himself as a, as a major player. Uh, he was beating Nadal in Madrid. He was, I, I'm pretty sure he was up a break and up a set. And then his back gave out. And Nishikori has as far as I know, never won a, a Masters 1000 tournament. That was possibly his, 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 his greatest chance. Alcaraz was uh, a setup on serve and then took a nasty tumble running to the deuce corner, flipped his racket out of his hand. So I think he, he came down hard on his right hand, but he, he didn't jam it with the racket but he turned his ankle and I believe that Nadal then won 20 out of the next 22 points to wrap up the set and Alcaraz left the court got a change of shirt you know steadied himself and coming back into the third set you thought okay maybe Alcaraz will 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 make a go of it but if he goes down 6-2 in the third set um, then, you know, it's been a pretty good effort. Not a bit of it. You know, he steadied himself, he held serve, and then he broke Nadal for 3-1, which, which you know, I just hadn't expected at all. I said, you know, I know nothing. You know, I just didn't see that coming. And then held his serve throughout and, and played quite a spectacular match point where he got himself out of position coming into the net. And Nadal then, you know, pushed him all around the, the court but didn't have quite the killer touch and Alcaraz hit this sort of looping passing shot off a Nadal swing volley that that, that dropped in and, and the thing was that the, the Alcaraz's celebration you know, he was very pleased to win but it wasn't as if uh, this is the greatest thing ever it's I've won a quarterfinal then he takes on Djokovic who is a pretty good player um, still, I think, trying to find his best form on clay, has talked about some of the issues that he had psychologically with what happened at the start of the season. But Djokovic won a first set tie break, celebrated raucously, you know, playing a little bit of the villain to the crowd, perhaps. Uh, was he going to sort of put his foot down and grind Alcaraz down. He had his chances in the, in the second set, 
But Alcaraz uh, came through and again won an absolutely spectacular set point. Um, you know, picking up a little flip, Djokovic cross court drop shot recovery and bunting it down the line, and then they got to a final set tie break, and it was really all about could Alcaraz hold his nerve. He was never behind in that tie break, and it was very much a question. Can he hold his nerve? Um, and then, as you know, on the the second match point that he had, uh, he hit a kicker um, serve to add, which was a, a, a brutal shot all day on the, the Madrid clay. That Djokovic was having all kinds of trouble returning it. Djokovic flipped the ball back to the uh, ad corner and then sort of kind of tried to uh, fake Alcaraz into sending it back cross court and Alcaraz just hidden inside in down the line winner just you know as if he'd done it a hundred times so just tremendous poise in both matches I think. So a final thing about Alcaraz before we move on with with our with our show and that is you know what's what's the most impressive thing about him I mean to me Andrew it's I mean I've said that the inner game that he's so poised and 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 calm and resolute he's he turns the page mentally you can see it like he would lose a break lead he would lose a break point uh to Djokovic in, in particular and you know he he had chances to take uh that match you know uh by the horns in the third set had several chances to do so failed but then in his next service game he resets the dial put posts another solid hold to keep his nose in front uh, mentally, you know, he's able to not only deal with match pressure in a way that, you know, it usually takes several years for even the best pros to do this. It took a while for Federer. It took a while for Djokovic uh, to do this, you know, into their, um, you know, their age 22, age 23 seasons. But the other thing is that, and this is a particular comparison with Federer, he knows he has all the different shots. Like this is a well-rounded player. He has touch. He has power. He has a sense of the geometry of the court and how to how to hit shots with more spin, more angle. Uh, we saw this when he was, you know, backpedaling, and he hit a cross-court uh, forehand uh, inside out uh, when he when Zverev was at the net. He hit it from the uh, from the uh, ad corner cross-court uh, for a winner. Um, yep. You know, he has that kind of feel for the game, but, you know, it took Federer a while. It also took Ash Barty a while to figure out the patterns of play, to figure out how to use the various tools in the toolbox in specific sequences and combinations. But Alcaraz already has a pretty full, fully formed grasp of that. So it's not just you know, handling pressure in the inner game. But for me, what also stands out is just he has a thorough understanding of how to play. So so his mind puts all these pieces together. It enables all of his shots, all of his physical attributes to become fully realized. That, to me, is the, the essence of Alcaraz. Um, you know, what, what stands out the most in, in your overall analysis of where he and his game stand today? So the, the first thing is, is just pure raw ability. And I'll, I'll add one thing to the list that you put out there, which is speed. Uh, 
my father, who I used to watch a lot of rugby with, used to say, you can't coach pace. And, and <laughs> what, he, what he meant by that was, you know, uh, you know, obviously you can work with people who are sprinters and improve their sprinting, but you've actually got to have that raw speed about you. And I think that's something that, that Alcaraz really does have. He's very, very fast. And I think that Zverev, one of the reasons he was having difficulty, and, and there's another reason why Zverev was having difficulty that we haven't mentioned yet that I, I wanted to get into the show. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak about that in a second. But Zverev was having to respect um, Alcaraz's speed. And so he was having to go closer to the lines than he wanted to. Um, then he's got power, but he's also got finesse. So the, the drop shots that he uses are set up because people have to respect that he can give the ball a little bit of a ride. And so they're, they're maybe dropping back two to three meters behind the baseline and whoops, you know, he's, he's throwing in these drop shot winners and he had this, uh, this ungodly percentage and proportion of drop shot winners in Madrid. So we've seen a couple of players since the last two players who zoomed up to greatness, who did it more or less together, Murray and Djokovic, Nadal a year before them. We've had a couple of players start on that ride, at least in my view, and those, those are Del Potro and Zverev. Uh, Zverev in 2017 looked like the coming player. He won back-to-back um, Masters 1000 tournaments. Uh, he was taking Federer apart in Montreal before uh, Federer had a back spasm and Zverev won easily. Zverev has never really developed into the all-around elite player that he looked like he would five years ago. Del Potro, uh, I think in 2009, you would have penciled him in for five-plus majors over his career, possibly more. And as we all know, after beating Federer at the US Open, he never won another major. He he won one Masters 1000 tournament, which was um, in Indian Wells when he beat Federer towards the back end of his career. And injuries and and issues with his wrist, with his knees, they, they uh, played havoc with his career. So you never know what... What, what's going to happen but with with Alcaraz it's it's very much the most exciting player to come onto the scene I think since Nadal all right let's move on with our conversation so you want to talk more about Zverev so I mean basically you have the floor on Zverev but let me suggest a talking point uh to inform part of the conversation about Zverev do you think that losing to a teenager just getting torched getting blown out by Alcaraz's complete game is going to be the thing which gets Zverev out of the pusher mentality, out of the conservative court position and all the things that have been holding him back in his career. What do you think about that? I don't know. Um, the thing that I was going to say about Zverev was that after the, uh, the tournament, he was very um, upset about the scheduling and the fact that he'd had to go to bed at about four or five o'clock at night, twice in a row at Madrid. Uh, I think that he, he may be able to use that to, to write off the experience of being taken to the cleaners by Alcaraz in the final. 
uh, you know, I don't know what is going to get Zverev out of what you describe as the, as the pusher mentality. Uh, when he did uh, beat Federer five years ago, what impressed me was how he was bossing him from the baseline. But he seems to have this sort of natural tendency to um, to you know to prefer to drop back and and play from deep. So I, Zverev, maybe it'll it, it'll all come together for him mentally, but. I, I'm I'm not sure that um, that he's going to progress significantly farther. Whereas when you look you you look at the the younger generation, the Sinners, the Alcarazes, the Mazzettis, uh, you know the Sebastian Corda, for example, they've got a lot more of progressing to do over the next three or four years. So it, on a broader level, Andrew, if you are Alexander Zverev or Stefano Tsitsipas or Danil Medvedev or, you know, another player with a few years under the belt with some experience in major semis and finals, but who, ha- who you know, hasn't made as much of a breakthrough as one might like or hope for. What are you thinking right now in terms of, uh, you know, how, how you should respond to the Alcaraz steam war? Like, you know, obviously this has made a ripple in the ATP locker room, you know it's the talk of the tour. You know that at Rome uh, this week and at Roland Garros, you know guys are gonna be talking about, oh, uh, you know he's coming. You know, as you said, Law, he's coming. Uh, yeah. You know, so how do you, how should tour pros who are in that tier below the big three, uh, you know, how should they be processing this? What kind of message should this send? you know, to the, the, those guys in the top 10. Let's also include like Berrettini as another example. What should be the thought process? What should be the response in terms of like how I take the next step, how I try to, you know, make use of this and, and see this as a call to improvement so that I can get a major, uh, you know, as the big three wind down and before Alcaraz, you know, gets even bigger, tougher, faster and stronger. I think it's. It, 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 I don't think that that you, if you're a professional uh, tennis player on either tour, the women's tour or the men's tour, and you see someone putting a run together, I don't think you think, well, oh, I've got to throw everything out and change everything that I do. I remember when Federer lost twice in a row to Canyas, and people said, well, well, now what are you going to do? He says, well, look, I don't have to play him every week. So most pros, I think, are going to you know, look and see, is he doing anything that I can use? Uh, the you know, people have got the, the body that they have and the, the, the speed that they have. But, you know, the way that he's using drop shots, well, maybe we can use that ourselves. And every... Um, every rising player has to worry about what gets called the sophomore slump that as the tour figures out, okay, you like to do this, but you don't like to do this. Well, we'll get you to do more of the stuff that you don't like. There will be a lot of uh, attention paid to the things that Carlos Alcaraz doesn't like to do just as 
Nadal learned that Federer didn't like to hit um, backhands above his shoulder and targeted high looping topspin for that. So I, I don't think anyone is saying, well, you know, forget the next 48 majors. Um, I think that they'll respond the way they usually do. All right. Uh, one more ATP question before we go to the WTA and toward matters of scheduling and also tennis governance that we want to address on this episode. Uh, Dominic Team, you know, he lost to Fabio Fanini in, in the early round of Rome. Uh, one of our ac- uh, tennis with an accent uh, readers wanted us to address uh, Dominic Team specifically on this show. So, you know, he's going through the losing streak. It obviously seems clear that his uh, developmental arc in terms of his rehab and recovery, it's going to take a lot longer than some might've first thought. So, you know, how should team calibrate his recovery? What, what decisions does he need to be weighing? Like I've mentioned the the notion that he should skip grass and play uh, post Wimbledon clay because that's where he's more comfortable. And, you know, he did suffer that wrist injury, um, on grass where you know, he has to hit a flatter shot. He can't have as long a take back on his swing. Um, so maybe just playing pr- clay and hard courts might be the better play in the short run for this season, just that he plays matches and, and, and deals with situations that are more comfortable for him. Just what do you think are the decisions that team needs to be weighing right now as he tries to work his way back into form? Well, he knows what his body is capable of doing. And there's been some discussion of, of, of technical adjustments. A lot of the matches he's played, he, he, he's been close-ish on the, on, on the score sheet. Um, but the wins haven't, haven't been there. He's, he's played five... Um, Matches on clay so far, he's won one set, and that was against John Millman in in Belgrade. And some of the players that have beaten him, he, he lost to Pedro Cachin at the Marbella uh, Challenger. Uh, he lost to Benjamin Bonzi in Estoril. He lost to Andy Murray, who's who's got his own comeback tour. He he just has to think through himself, am I using the next six months to re-familiarize myself with playing tennis matches, being on the tour, um, you know, getting my body used to it again, or am I expecting that at, at some stage the light will go back on and I'll be dominant team again and, and comebacks. Sometimes a player come, comes back, and it's like they've never been away from the tour. Other times it, 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 it takes a lot longer. I like Murray's uh, reaction when they had the handshake at the net after the, the match in Madrid, where Murray, who's been going through it himself, said, keep at it, it's worth it. You know, you'll, you'll come back, you'll do it. All right, let's move to the WTA. And Ons Jabur taking advantage of a special opportunity winning her first 1,000-point uh, title in Madrid. You know, as is well known, she was the only player uh, seeded in the top 10 uh, to make the quarterfinals. There were only two seeds, period, 
who made the quarterfinals. The, the woman that she beat in the final, Jessica Pagula, was seeded 12. Those were the only two seeded players in the round of eight. And uh, Jabur and Pagula, you know, they both knew how big a match this was in terms of getting points and especially in terms of bagging a first title. And it was a predictably up and down match. Both, both players felt the nerves. They felt the weight of the moment. But Jabur powered through in the third set, uh, you know, winning the first set bought her time. It enabled her to kind of deal with the ups and downs of the match. You know, she, she wasn't uh, fully there in the second set, but she was able to just pick it back up in the third and close it out. So your, your observations of not only Jabur's title, but what you saw over the week in Madrid on the WTA side. Yeah. So uh, it, it's interesting when you, you look at the the WTA, you've moved from a thing at the start of the year where it looked like we were going to have a dominant number one, and then she stunned the tennis world by retiring, Ash Barty. But it now seems as if, well, wait a second, maybe there is going to be another dominant number one, only she wasn't playing in Madrid. She decided to to rest up and uh, Iga Schwantek will be playing in Rome and in Roland Garros. But yeah, for the, for the, for the week you, you had Paula Badosa who's, who's had a pretty good run up the, the rankings and I think came in as the number two seed and she was you know, taken out pretty routinely by Simona Halep in the the round of 32. So I didn't watch as much of the WTA as I, I watched uh, the more of the ATP. I, I watched the Emma Raducanu match and, and Raducanu had opportunities, but eventually went down to a more experienced opponent who then wasn't able really to 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 build off of that and and so and unfortunately in in a number of the the wta cycles that we've been through you and i and saki have talked about this there's there's kind of like an any given saturday aspect to to the wta until you get players really able to establish themselves tournament in tournament out now Naomi Osaka seems to be struggling uh with an Achilles issue so that makes it hard to look ahead to Roland Garros and and see her as uh being able to to be a major threat there Bianca Andreescu is still making her way back into the 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 top levels so it gives opportunities to players like Pagula um and Jabur to to take titles um unfortunately the the match itself wasn't the greatest ad- advertisement for 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 women's singles in terms of quality of play and even in 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 terms of drama the the first set was interesting went back and forth the second set Jouber managed to get herself bageled after having two break points on her opponent's serve in the first game of the second set and not breaking as she'd had in the first set. Then in the third set, she had 
two break points, converted them, but then you had back-to-back breaks. So Jabir was up 2-1 with a break. But then Jabir seemed to sort of steady herself and managed to uh, you know, be the stronger player and deservedly win the title. I think that everyone who has watched her over the last few years you know, become a, a threat to, to win top quality tournaments was was really pleased for her. her story is a great one the first african first tunisian player to to win at that level and you know the hope is that that then becomes the stepping stone i think her record in finals wasn't that great and now having won a big final then maybe that puts her into the the conversation about players who contest at the uh the tour finals but also potentially be making it to the quarterfinals or the semifinals of uh, the, the the top tour tournaments. But at the moment, I kind of get the sense that it's Shriantek and the rest. I don't know what you think. No, I mean, that's going to be the fascinating discussion point uh, heading into Paris because, you know, as great as Shriantek has been, there's no question she's been a dominant player uh, since Barty uh, retired. Um, you know, most of her work has been on hard courts. Uh, so, you know, that that's kind of a little bit of a plot twist. We'll you know, we'll see if she gets uh, several matches deep into Rome. I would expect that she does. But, you know, if she loses early and you, know, you might be listening to this podcast later in the week. We won't know the results of play on on Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, if you're listening to this, or at least there's a there's a chance that you might be listening to this later in the week. You know, if she does lose early, that that would certainly uh, shift the conversation, but I'm inclined to think, yes, it's, it's her tournament to lose. Cause you know, she was knocked out by Sakari last year in the quarters and, and it, and it seems though just the toll of the season, uh, you know, was, was acutely felt. And last year was kind of Iga Sviantek's hard knocks experience as a tennis pro learning how to deal with the rigors of the tour, her 2020 Roland Garros title, you know, that was an outlier in terms of how easy it was. Uh, only 28 games lost in uh, seven matches. We all knew that 2021 was going to be more difficult. And, and certainly, you know, she did get bruised by the tour, but now her dominance certainly shows that like she definitely learned a lot from her 2021 experience. So that tells me that she's going to be mentally ready uh, for what's ahead in Paris. Now, Andrew, as we move along, one of the very conspicuous aspects of the Madrid tournament was the fact that you, know, you had a semifinal, a 1,000-point semifinal, uh, Jessica Pagula against Jill Teichman, starting at about 11.20 p.m. local time on Thursday. Uh, and you had, you know, there were zero women's matches on Friday. You had the one final on Saturday, which was pushed late because Djokovic and Alcaraz not only played a three-and-a-half-hour semifinal but that that match started at 4 20 p.m they wait they wait until late in the day in madrid to start the men's semis uh so that match was pushed late and so over the last three days the women were barely noticeable in madrid you know it's interesting that that the schedule puts the women on their round of 64 their first round began on thursday April 28th, and then the second weekend, it was virtually all men with a very few exceptions. And, and again, a semi, women's semifinal starting at 11.20 p.m. 
uh, it just seems very clear that the Madrid schedule is designed to put the ATP on a pedestal and it tried to get the women out of the way as quickly as possible. That's, that's kind of the framework of the Madrid schedule as it operates. Um, and it really pushed the, the WTA to the side, kind of gave it a patronizing pat on the head, like, we'll just get you out of the way here. And we'll also, you know, you're going to play semifinals at 11 p.m. and like it, uh, regardless of what you think. I mean, this is a this is a very politically sensitive thing, given that the discussion about the relationship between the two tours, um, you know, tennis players from both tours forming a union, you know, how much uh, the, the, the stakes are in terms of players on both tours being invested in the same kinds of of issues. I mean, this Madrid scheduling is a really big problem. And I wonder what you think about it in terms of just the ramifications for tennis governance going forward. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you that it's a really serious issue. I think there've been uh, discussions between the ATP and the WTA about alignment um, I don't know how far those have gotten. We've gotten to uh, parity in terms of the prize money in some tournaments like the majors and I think at Indian Wells. But in Rome, I think that there's a, there's a huge gap between what the men um, will get uh, for making the finals or winning the tournament and what the women will make. Uh, and they're both um 1000 level tournaments they've sort of integrated that aspect of it the the men and the women play on the same courts um same um level of tournament but tennis really has to take a real hard look at itself and say are we representing that the women's game is something that ought to be seen as something that the tours are content to be second level. I, I, I see no reason at all why in the 2020s, if you um, have watched women's tennis for decades as I have, that you should be expecting that they'd get that level of of disrespect the, the the scheduling was was awful the way that the um the prize money is is assigned in rome i think is is wrong so we also have you know when it comes to player power uh, a really interesting flashpoint coming up so we've got the the peak of the clay season Roland Garros just around the corner but that then leads us into grass season and grass season will culminate with Wimbledon without it appears the Belarusian or Russian players for any of the women's or men's tournaments at Wimbledon that's something that the the tours and the the nascent players union the ptpa have have commented negatively about and individual players have commented negatively about i just can't say i've seen anything organized about it that doesn't mean that there aren't arguments about that individual question the question of of russians playing alongside 
or Belarusians playing alongside their Ukrainian counterparts, you can see why that um, is a, a, a sensitive issue and there are arguments on both sides. But in terms of the, the players organizing themselves to defend their interests, it doesn't seem like we're any farther along than we were when you had that, that PTA, PTPA photo shoot at the US Open two years ago. Um, and whether or not, as we come out of the pandemic, the tours can get their acts together, get a, a decent level of alignment for the 2020s, and the players' interests are better respected. Um, the signs aren't that good halfway through 2022. Let's just hit on this scheduling piece uh, with a little bit more specificity because I know that our listeners have their own ideas. So, you know, there are different ways we can go with this conversation about scheduling. Now, for me, Andrew, my big thing is you don't have split session semifinals. You should play them one after the other so that they're on relatively equal footing, that that's my, that would be my number one starting point. But there's lots of other things that we could choose. Like the women's final was not at a set time. It was at the mercy of when the first men's semifinal ended. So it's a very important, rightly so, that for the WTA, that you know the women's final should start at a set time. So in other words, you should play the men's, the first men's semifinal if you have a split session format, which I don't like. But if you're going to have it, you should put the first men's semi at two o'clock. That way you can very easily have the women's final start at seven or seven fifteen, whichever, like, you know, you're going to be able to start that women's final at seven fifteen If you put the semifinal, the men's semifinal at two, but by putting the men's semifinal at four twenty, well, that created the backlog. And so you didn't have that set start time that Jabur and Pagula could count on. There's also the notion of, you know, should we have the finals on the same day? You know, should you have the women's final and the men's final on the same day? Uh, obviously, the, there's a complication there because the women's uh, tournament has to go to the next tour stop. So maybe you should put them on the women's final on Saturday, men on Sunday. But, you know, in a way which allows for the women to still have center stage uh, later in the tournament. Obviously, you shouldn't have a semifinal starting at 11.20 p.m. So, Andrew, among all those things I, I mentioned or something I didn't mention, what would be your first point of focus in terms of creating a fairer, better schedule? What, what's something that you emphasize when you look at how to map out a good tennis schedule? Well, one of the questions would be, why do we assume that the, the final centerpiece match is a men's final? Why wouldn't you alternate years where you have an ATP final on a Saturday and a WTA final on a Sunday, and then the following year, the WTA final on the Saturday and the ATP final on the Sunday. Um, it's, I, I always used to think that you, you'd have these GOAT discussions in tennis, the greatest of all time. And the question I always asked was, well, why do we assume that that player has a Y chromosome? So why do we assume that um, players with a Y chromosome get the, 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 the final match in, in a tournament, which seems to be the centerpiece match? Um, so that would be the, 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 the innocent question that I would throw out there. 
And, uh, you know, you, you delved into met aspects of tennis governance. And, you know, when we get closer to Wimbledon, we'll obviously talk more about the Russian and uh, Belarusian uh, pl player ban. But, you know, we also had, you know, <laughs> it's amazing, but like Australia seems like 10 years ago when we had the Djokovic's uh, COVID situation. But, you know, it is striking, Andrew, how many unique, different and yet equally polarizing situations we've had in tennis governance this year. I mean, COVID, Ukraine, Russia, like those are not run of the mill, ordinary situations. You know, is this what's a unifying theme that can be gleaned from all the different uh, high voltage tennis controversies that we've had this year? Or, Andrew, is it not so much? the need to find a, a unifying theme, but just the need to better address specific situations as they come along. Um, I, I, I wonder if it's a question, um, and, and I think it would be a useful and an interesting thing to kick around for a you know, maybe a, a separate conversation rather than wrapping up this one that we're having. But in, in tennis, is the glass half full or is it half empty? A, we're coming out of the pandemic, apparently, uh, I would say, in, in ruder health than, than I thought that we might be a year and a half ago, um, that we haven't lost a huge number of tournaments. Um, the, the tournaments that we have are, are doing pretty well. But there really is this sense that the way that tennis has been played in the um, the 2020s may not be popular, may not stay on the same footing for the 2020s and the 2030s. And I think Matt Willis, who has a, a, a you know really first class analytical view of some of this stuff and, and, and a tremendous newsletter, he spent a lot of time digging into what the business of tennis ought to look like for things like streaming, for things like betting or gaming. Um, so with the, the way that tennis is governed, the say that players have, I think that you have factions within tennis on the ATP. They tend to coalesce around the older players, Federer and Nadal, some of their allies that say it isn't broken. There's things that we can do better. I think those guys have the ear of Gaudenzi, who's the, the, the ATP CEO. So incremental change. Yes. More money. Yes. Better distribution. Yes. But it isn't broke. It doesn't need to be fixed. And then you have what I think is the, the PTPA viewpoint and the, the view of, of, of some other players, which is, it can't go on like this. Do we need to change the formats? Do we need to really shake up the calendar? Uh, do we need to, to change the way that we broadcast tennis? Um, can we afford to have men's matches going on four, five, six hours in tournaments? So the, the fundamental question is, is tennis really healthy or is it recovering and, and getting healthy again? Or is, is it about to step on a rake and, and bang itself in the face? 
Well, on that evocative note, um, we'll close our show for the week. Um, I, I, you know, we, we've looked back at, at Madrid. I guess, I guess if there's one other thing, actually, just to throw in, is this, that when we look at the large landscape of tennis players coming out of Madrid, uh, just, you know, any sense of, uh, you know, specific players who either made the grade or, or fell short of the grade, obviously Alcaraz gets an A+, plus. obviously Jabir gets an A+, plus. Um, you know, Djokovic definitely moved forward, but just any other players we want to spotlight as we wrap up the show? Well, I think if you're looking ahead to Roland Garros, um, you, apart from Alcaraz, has anyone really changed their relative rankings? Sitsipas lost in five sets to Djokovic last year. If Stefanos makes it all the way through this year, is anyone going to be really surprised? He won Monte Carlo, defended his his crown there, got to the semifinals in uh, Madrid. So so he's looking pretty good. Apart from him, um, you've got a couple of uh, you know older players, Djokovic and Nadal, neither of whom you're expecting to see go out in the first round. So if you penciled in um, Nadal, Djokovic, Alcaraz and Tsitsipas, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have a distillation of the conventional wisdom there. Now on the women's side, um, I, our sense I think is Sriantec, um ought to be feeling pretty good. We'll see how she does in Rome. But then beyond that, the, the, the women's semi-finalists are rarely the same tournament to tournament. So how I, I, I don't feel comfortable giving player grades uh, on the, the WTA tour. Uh, I just haven't seen anyone other than Triantec uh, and Angeba who, who reached the Charleston final as well as the uh, as winning Madrid. I'm not sure that there, there's anyone there who you, you'd look at and say, uh, if they don't make the semifinals, I'm going to be staggered. So on that note, Andrew, we will definitely wrap up our show. Boy, we covered a lot of ground. And Sakib and I thank you so much for rejoining our podcast uh, to look at the broad range of t- interesting topics and issues across tennis from the ATP to the WTA to scheduling to governance. We covered it all, and uh, obviously we're going to look forward to having you uh, as we preview Roland Garros in a few weeks. Andrew Burton, thank you for joining us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. My pleasure.